Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, my friends, and welcome to our Resolute Hope podcast. This is John Russin, and I am here in sunny, dry Southern Arizona. And I'm talking with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman, who unfortunately lives in rainy, wet Southern Louisiana. How are you doing, Frank? Well, we're hot and sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> As usual, man, you have, uh, you've had some storms in the past couple of weeks. I want to introduce today with uh, a couple of thoughts about the two hurricanes you've had within a week. What's going on over there, man? Oh, sad, sad situation for a lot of people. Uh, you know, we just like, you know, people in California live knowing that there very well could be earthquakes and, and fires. Uh, people here on the Gulf Coast live with the thought that there can be a major hurricane. And what a lot of people don't realize, John, is with the hurricane often comes tornadoes and especially with when you've had several days of wet ground through constant and heavy rain, uh, those tornadoes and high winds can really wreak havoc on people's lives in terms of the devastation of their property and uh, their ability to live in a modern world as a lot of the uh, modern amenities are taken away from them. They without electricity, and it's really tough to do down here in the steamy hot south. Indeed, I saw the personal suffering, the loss, the emptiness on the people's faces. My goodness, I wonder how do people manage this if they don't know Christ as life? Oh, you know, John, when Katrina rolled in many years ago, uh, we sent crews out and I can still remember those faces as I personally went with crews down to New Orleans and people just looked lost, uh, which is weird because they know where they are, but they look lost. There's an emptiness, uh, a shock, uh, and I think you couple that with a fear of, you know, how are we going to get through this? And I'm sure those people down in those parishes in South Louisiana are feeling that right now. It's, it's a sad thing for them to have to face this. And it certainly does bring to light the fact that uh, without Jesus, there is no hope. There is no hope at all. And I think, Frank, of the conversation you and I have had over many years, the five promises that Jesus made, that he gave us his joy, his rest, his abundant life, that he personally would be our peace and that he would be our truth and that truth would set us free. Man, without these bedrock beliefs, the tumult in this fallen world can truly be devastating. It truly can. Yeah, I, I think of that tremendous Psalm, probably most people's favorite, Psalm 23. 
uh, he is my shepherd. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, he will be with us. And that's a really important distinction, I think, John, is that, you know, a lot of people have the mistaken belief system that he's going to preserve us from the storms of life. And that's really not true. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise that. What he promises to do is be with us in the storms of life. Uh, and that's where, you know, that Apostle Paul made that great statement in Philippians 4. I, I know how to be rich. I know how to be poor. I know how to live uh, well. I, I know how to live when things aren't so well. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is a comforting verse, but it certainly is daunting when you're facing the absence of your house or your loss of everything precious you've ever had uh, to see these storms go through. But you're right, my brother. Through Christ, we can face anything. Now, there are a lot of believers out there, though, who uh, would recite these verses very calmly under good circumstances in their life. But when things really get tight, uh, they kind of lose track of the promises. Maybe in this storm or even in the struggles of everyday life and their job problems, their marriage problems, their kid problems. Uh, they're not really all that obvious in every Christian's at time. Why is that, do you think? Oh, you know, John, I think what happens is, you know, the, the battleground very clearly spelled out in the New Testament is our mind. And wherever we set our mind, uh, that is where we'll see the external fruit coming forth in our lives. And it's very easy. I would never be critical of anyone in this arena, having had to walk through a lot of deep waters myself. Uh, but it's very easy when trauma or calamity comes to set our minds and fix our eyes on that calamity. And we can see that. It's, that's why it's so easy to do. It's very easy to see the trial when I don't see a God who is invisible. And so that's where this issue of faith comes in. And faith is a, a, a tough deal sometimes to deny what we see and trust a God we cannot see. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people is you know, that's what happened to Asaph in Psalm 73. He looked at wicked people prospering and he says, I almost stumbled. And he says, I was functioning like an animal instead of functioning like a human being in a relationship with God. So it's very easy to do, and, and we certainly understand how it happens. You may recall, my friend, the last podcast that we shared together, we talked about going back to the Garden in Eden. We talked about uh, the source of, of conflict and mistrust that arose there in the Garden, and we see through our lives and people today. We go back to... Uh, what God defines as good, and what we want to call as good. And God says he uses all things to work for good. Uh, but sometimes those things don't actually seem very good to us. And it goes back to, as we said earlier, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We began to act independently as God. And so we took it upon ourselves to decide what was good or what was evil. We've taken that decision-making power out of our Father's hands. 
And so it leaves us in a turmoil because your good is different from my good. Our good becomes relative. And so what happens to the joy, the rest, the peace, the life, the comfort, the freedom? Uh, it all disappears because there's no foundation for truth. We're all struggling in the same lie that Adam believed that he would be his God, aren't we? Yes, and that's a very important point you've just brought up, John. The joy, the rest, the peace, the freedom, the abundant life, they are our possessions. Uh, we have them. Jesus promised them. And because he promised them, when he accomplished his finished work in his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and it's very important to include all of those, because when he ascended, that's when he sent his spirit who fulfilled all those promises and brought us God's own life to be placed in union with our life. So we have God's joy. We have God's peace. We have God's freedom and abundant life. But we sometimes don't experience them when we take our eyes off of him and place them onto another source of life. And so they are internal, but not necessarily find its way external out of our spirit sometimes. Yeah, all those things are true about us, but sometimes working out our salvation and having it be evidenced in our everyday life is not as easy as simply reading those words on a page. They truly mm -hmm. are not. Well, but Colossians 2 tells us plainly, my friend, that we are complete in him. Ephesians 2 tells us we have every spiritual blessing. It's already ours. And so if we are basically fully equipped packages, then why does Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 pray that we'll understand what we have? Is it, what's going on there? There seems like there's a breakdown. We have stuff, but we don't know we have it. And so we're walking in fusion. Help us out here. Oh, boy, that's a big question. But it's uh, fortunately the New Testament, I think, has some of those answers for us. You know, first and foremost, uh, John, I think what happens sometimes is uh, the church has made the gospel an issue of destination. And I, I don't ever want to be critical of the church, uh, but I do want to fight for her. And sometimes I think what we've done is we've made the gospel an issue of destination. This is how I was led to Christ, except Jesus, Frank, your sins will be forgiven and you can go to heaven someday. And I said, well, sign me up because that was a really good thing. But that's only part of the gospel. Uh, the other part of the gospel, of course, is that he came to live inside of us. And that, so sometimes I think the message isn't taught fully and completely. So people can't put their faith in what they don't know. I, I think another problem is that, you know, ever since the fall of man, as we talked a few weeks ago, man has lived in an economy of achieving and performance, the economy of right and wrong, which was, of course, the, the name of that tree, the tree of good and evil. And so we're all achievers. And so for us to become receivers, it's, it's hard for us. And then, of course, this whole economy of grace from heaven 
It's the mind of God. And 1 Corinthians 2 is very, very clear. We are finite beings. We're dealing with the infinite mind of an infinite God. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what we've received. If I could illustrate it, John, if I put a million dollars in a bank account in John Russon's name, but never tell him, are you a millionaire? Yes, sir, I am. Absolutely. Yes, you are. But it's not profiting you because you don't know it. So what if I came to you and said, hey, John, here's the bank account, the checkbook. I put a million dollars in there. Well, now you know. But the problem is you're probably not going to believe it. <laughs> Why would you, I give you me? <laughs> knowing you, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, why would I give you a million dollars? And this is exactly, I think, what happens with a lot of Christians. One is we don't know. But then even when we hear the gospel of Christ living in us, of us being made righteous in him, of us being crucified, buried, and resurrected with him, it's uh, and the economy of grace, receive instead of achieve. It's just too good to be true. And we find ourselves struggling to believe it. And if you don't believe I gave you those million dollars, my friend, you're never going to write any checks. You're never going to use that debit card. And that's, I think, what's happening to Christians. They don't believe how good the good news really is. So they don't spend, if you will, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of them. And, and so it, they don't experience the transformation. It runs so contrary, my friend, to everything that this world values. All of us who have jobs or have had jobs, have careers, we know that the yardstick for success uh, is very defined. And <laughs> it's tough when you have to measure up to a yardstick. You've got to perform. You've got to deliver. But it's different with our mm -hmm. Savior because everything he has for us is a gift. And then from that gift, as it unpacks in our lives, we see the evidence of his life coming out as we trust him, as we live. And it's so different from the way the rest of the world operates that it's, it's easy to see. I myself over many years have, have basically stumbled because I failed to keep my eyes on that truth. And I know you have as well. Yeah, it's like uh, if we could use the analogy, because I know you were in education for decades, if I study and I get a 95, I'm given an A. If I study, but I only perform so well in the test and I get an 85, I get a B. And so the world in its entirety grades on performance. When we come to the New Testament, God grades on the basis of faith. And if you have put your faith in the finished work of Christ, you just scored a hundred. Now, you may act like a, a real turkey sometimes, but you remain having scored a hundred because that's how God grades. He grades pass-fail. And that's really hard for us to come to grips with. Now here, of course, we're not talking about behavior, but we are talking about who we are identity and identity is a, a faith based receiving in terms of pass fail and in Christ we pass. And that's wonderful. 
that is a message that should resonate through the lives of every believer. But unfortunately, many of them, they, they, they're not taught this or they choose not to believe it. And so when they score one out of five on joy or two out of five on peace and their life's a turmoil, and so they go to counseling or they go to see their pastors. And oftentimes, and this happened to me, they were not told to believe and receive. They're told to, to do more, to pray more, to give more, to fast more, to read your Bible more. Uh, but none of these things really seems to have the desired effect. You've been in counseling for decades, my friend. How well do those approaches work? Well, they're not going to because Jesus set up an economy of receiving. And, you know, in Romans 5.17, he said, if you receive, and that is a, such a foreign verb to the way most Christians think. Uh, we would say, if you pray, if you tithe, if you fast, if you go to church, but that's not the word used. It's receive. If you receive the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, you will reign in this life through the one Jesus Christ. And John, I think, you know, because we're all birthed under Adam's choice to live by law, and because of that belief system that blitzed all of us that we shall be as God, it's just so hard for us in our pride and in our history in terms of living on this planet to shift gears from achieving to receiving. And it, it's just really hard for us to do. You know, there's a verse that all of us know, Isaiah 118. We know this part, come now and let us reason together. But what we mm -hmm. never bother to mention is the, the 10 or 12 verses that come before that, where God is basically telling them, stop doing what you're doing, even though I told you to do it. You know, like there's mm. nothing wrong with praying, giving, fasting, reading your Bible. There's nothing wrong with any of those. But they're, they're doing it for the wrong motive in Isaiah chapter 1. They're doing it for the wrong motive. And, he, and God goes after the heart. He goes after the motive. And so these approaches, these canned approaches to getting what you want out of your relationship with God are going to fail. Because the motive's not right. The heart's not there. You're seeking a result. You're not seeking a person. And that is always going to lead to death and emptiness. Hmm. That's a, that's a tremendous thought because, again, going back to that idea of achieving, if you're praying, fasting, tithing, going to church to acquire life, that's never going to happen because God has revealed himself as the source of life. So the praying, the tithing, the fasting, the going to church should be the result of having found life with God and therefore wanting to express that life to others. But anytime you're going to use those things to acquire life, they're destined to fail because you're not fixing God as the source. You have become the source through what you're trying to manufacture. And like you said earlier, that's destined for failure. Well, that takes us back to Genesis chapters 3 and the lie of the garden and us choosing to act like God again. 
So I want to go back there just for a moment. And uh, we know that Romans chapter 5 tells us that death reigned through Adam. And then death passed upon all men. We saw that death happen in the garden. Well, Frank, let's talk about that death. They obviously didn't drop dead at that time. What happened there? Yeah, they didn't die physically. We know that they lived several hundred more years. We know that they didn't die solically. Uh, that's the Greek word, psyche. It's the word from which we get psychology, <laughs> uh, the study of the personality. So they didn't become mindless, emotionless, robotic people. Uh, otherwise, we would be mindless, emotionless, robotic people. They died in their spirit. They lost life. And they lost that life from God. And so from that point forward, every man, every woman born on this planet is a lifeless soul, a lifeless, uh, they're, they're physically alive, but spiritually dead. We could say walking corpses spiritually. And you remember that old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Every man and woman now is looking for life in all the wrong places. And that spells death. And it spells death in two ways. One, experientially, because we're never going to be able to find life anywhere but apart from God. And so life is going to be very frustrating, uh, very difficult, very empty for us as individuals. But then it also spells death relationally. Because if I'm coming to you for life, then I'm going to have to try to manipulate you and control you to get you to become a vessel that meets my needs. And that's death relationally, because you'll then be coming to me for the same thing. And it's a universal law that we can only give what we have. And so we're giving death to each other. And that's really uh, what our world is, you know, John, it's, uh, if I could use different terminology, um, God said we have to become like children with him. Well, if we're children, that means we've got a father and the father is the source for the children. So if I can be childlike with God and he becomes my source, then I can function in an adult relationship with you wonderful. And you can function in an adult relationship with me. But if we become adult with God, which is what Adam did in the garden, then we forfeit all that God can bring us. Now we have to try to find what we lost, which means we're going to be childlike with each other. I'm going to be trying to manipulate and control you, get my needs met from you. You're going to be trying to manipulate and control me and get your needs met from me. And what happens is when we're adult with God, we're childlike with each other. And, you know, that's really what our world is. It's a gigantic nursery full of a bunch of people who became adult with God and now function like a bunch of little kids, all screaming, mine. And it's a sad world. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> my friend, too often, uh, that represents me. <laughs> but, uh, but now that I, I know the truth, man, I know the truth. 
And I could, I could say, no, sir, that is not going to be who I am. Uh, we're going to wrap this up now, Frank. Uh, you mentioned a couple of thoughts that I want to end with. First is you talked about how difficult it is for people to, to manifest some form of life while they're dead. Well, that's called the flesh, and we're going to pick that up next time. But as we wind up, I want to give our listeners a little bit of a litmus test for where death may be operating in their life. And in this, I want to take them back to Genesis chapter 3. And if you recall at the end of chapter 2, the man and the woman were naked, and they were not ashamed. But right in Genesis chapter 3, after they disobey their father, what's the first thing they do? They were naked, God called it good, and they said, nope, it's evil, and I'm going to cover it. So from the very beginning, they took what God said, and they threw him out of the equation for defining good and evil. So dear listeners, if you're facing a circumstance that troubles you, whatever it happens to be, and you see truth in Scripture, and you refuse to believe it, or you mitigate it somehow, please realize that you're evidencing the same aspects of spiritual death that the first man and the first woman did. Mm. Choose to believe. Choose to grit your teeth and set your mind on what's true and cling to what your Father has promised. I guarantee you, you will walk in life. Mm. You know, John, you sparked my brain. Instantly after that, too, Adam, the blame game begins. He blames the woman for what he did. He blames God for giving him the woman. And you know, another thought that's amazing, the Hebrew words that were used to describe Adam and Eve was ish and isha, my Lord and my lady the prince and princess of creation from Psalm 8 created to reign in dignity and honor with God. As soon as the fall occurs, he changes her name from Isha, my lady, to Eve, the mother of my kids. <laughs> there again, basing her identity on what she did, her performance, instead of who she had been created to be. And that was just in the early pages of Genesis. Look at all these centuries we've had now to walk in this unbelief and this performance economy. So we really desperately need to get this turned around. Indeed, sir, we do. And uh, it's gonna be a fun series as we walk through Law and Grace. As we said, dear listeners, next time we'll begin to attack the topic of the flesh. But in the meantime, this is John Russin with uh, dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman, encouraging you once again to set your minds on things above. Believe the truth about yourself, that you are a child of the king, a princess, a prince. And as Ephesians 4.1 tells us, grit your teeth and choose to live by the worthy calling that you've received walking the truth don't forget our friends check us out on facebook and instagram under our resolute hope check out our website ourresolutehope.com you can a little learn a little bit more about us there on that web page and get some of the books and materials available to you until next time blessings to all thanks for listening 
We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.